Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. I'm home care editor Liza Berger. In terms of legislation and regulation, there is plenty to talk about in home health and hospice. This week at the annual conference of the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, NAC, I sat down with two experts in these areas, Calvin McDaniel and Davis Baird. Calvin is NAC's Director of Government Affairs for Home Health, and Davis is NAC's Director of Government Affairs for Hospice. Calvin, let's start with you. Obviously, the big talk these days and at this conference is the final rule for uh, Medicare home health. Where are we at with this rule? When is it supposed to come down? And what's what's your prediction? Yep. So at the time of this recording, we're just about seven days tops before we see that final rule um, uh, come out of CMS. Um, we've had a lot of advocacy to this point leading up to it on Capitol Hill, a lot of interpretation of that rule and really understanding what it means and sharing that across the home health community at large. Um, now, as far as predictions go, it's really tough to say what CMS will do with it. I think everybody listening to this knows that um, CMS goes into their cone of silence through the rulemaking process. So we know that there's been a lot of conversations um, from members of Congress reaching out to CMS. Um, and it's basically a listening session. We've had folks from the industry also uh, meeting with uh, various folks from CMS, but still it's a listening session every time. They haven't really tipped a hand, nor can they. Um, so it's, it's, it's tough to say, but um, we're, we're hoping they pull back on that rate cut in the final rule. Um, but, you know, we're certainly preparing and moving forward as though they won't and positioning ourselves to, to keep up the fight um, once that rule is finalized. Bill Dombey reiterated at his keynote address this week this three-pronged strategy that the association has taken to combat that rule. Will you talk us through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So naturally, the first step to that is uh, is trying to work with CMS on getting them uh, to back off that rate cut. Um, that's going to be done through our through our um, comment um, our comment submitted to them, um, and then again those meetings I just mentioned of um, trying to. Um, give them a different perspective. So that's that's the first approach. The second approach is going to be our legislative strategy. Um, that's kind of taking some different tacks. Obviously, we have the bill, the Preserving Access to Home Health Act, that would simply uh, prevent CMS from making these cuts for the next few years. Um, so we have that on the Hill, and it's being socialized, and we're getting a lot of support for it. Uh, but in, in addition to that, we've got a lot of our uh, champions, a lot of our friends in Congress that have been very active with with the administration, whether that be the White House, whether that be with the Secretary of HHS, or with the CMS administrator herself. Uh, we've had folks um, saying, what are you guys doing? These are going to be devastating cuts. You really need to back off this. Um, to be determined to see if that um, has resonated or not, uh, but that's the that's the second prong. And then the third, if need be, then we'll be looking at um, some potential legal action. Hopefully we don't have to get to that point, but. Um, we'll certainly evaluate that as, as, as the need arises. From what Bill said, it seems that you've got really good engagement uh, from the Senate and the House on this. He had provided that wonderful anecdote about somebody actually talking to President Biden on Air Force One. Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've had people in the highest levels of Congress reaching out to the White House, telling them to back off. We've got our lead champion, Debbie Stabenow, um, asking President Biden to also um, weigh in on this and back off of it. We've got any number of senators um, after that as well that have also reached out to people they know personally in the White House as well as as well as the agency, and then members of the House too. 
Um, so it's, it's very encouraging for us. Yes, some of these people have been longtime home health champions, but we also have some others that you know, haven't been so engaged with us in the past and to pick up their support um, through this and see them actively engaging is very encouraging for us. And it's really a testament to, you know, the advocacy that's gone on around this. Yes, NAC's been working this hard in, in, in conjunction with some other groups, but also seeing our members uh, really um, get involved in this as well. Um, we, really, we feel really good about where we're sitting right now. Can you uh, provide us some perspective on how deleterious this rule, proposed rule, would be if it becomes a final rule? Yeah. Assuming that no providers change any of their uh, practices, any of their behaviors, uh, any way they're delivering care right now, we're, we're expecting somewhere in the neighborhood of 51% of home health providers nationwide to be underwater, to have a negative profit margin. Now, if you look at that nationwide, you have some variance there, but I think I've seen as high as 75, 76% of providers in a given state that would be underwater. It's very concerning. Um, now, something we share with Congress and we think is very likely to happen is you'll have providers that will have to uh, make reductions, they're going to have to cut back on their staffing, they're going to have to look at what areas they're servicing and um, come to uh, come to a conclusion on whether or not they'll be able to continue to serve those areas. You know, it's no secret that um, home health workers are on the road a lot. You get into the rural areas and they can be driving 30, 45, 60 minutes one direction, maybe more. And it's a, it's a real burden on the bottom line for, for providers in those areas. So that's a huge concern to us. Um, nationwide rural areas will likely get hit by this. We already have an ongoing workforce problem. We had that well before the pandemic hit, well before these proposed rate cuts. These will just make that all the worse. So you're going to have people that want to go work in a hospital or health system. You will have folks that you know, look at other industries entirely. You see the signs and drive down the road now, um, you know, the big box stores, the uh, fast food chains hiring folks for $20 plus per hour. It's a very tough competition, very tough labor market, particularly given the physical demands and the emotional demands of working in the home. So, yeah, it, it, absolutely devastating cuts and um, ramifications will be felt nationwide by this. A lot of people might say, oh, come on, you know, the sky is always falling in home health. Yep, yep. Um, and seemingly it always is, but the unfortunate reality is that's what it's been every single year. We deal with um, the Medicare sequestration cuts every year. We deal with uh, rate cuts throughout the entirety of PDGM. We've done the 4.36 behavioral assumption cut. We've done the rebasing over the years, rebalancing over the years. It's always something, and this is just kind of the next hit. And the fear is we're starting to hear from uh, from providers that maybe this is it. Maybe this will be the final blow where they just can't do it anymore. Um, and they'll, they'll um, close up shop and move on to something else. And I don't think that's anything that anybody wants. Certainly from an act perspective, we don't want that. But the, the country at large and the government should not want that either. Obviously, this final proposed rule seems to be taking the oxygen out of the room in terms of any other legislation that you um, might be or regulations that you might be, you know, advocating for. What else, once you do get past this, is out there on the legislative front that, that you're fighting for? Well, you know, with the pandemic, we had so many uh, different things we were able to work on. We were able to um, get a pause on the, on the sequestration cuts. We were able to uh, secure the provider relief funding. That stuff was, I think, really great in time of need of providing stability. That led its way into the Choose Home Care Act that we worked on heavily last year and in the early part of this year. 
unfortunately, um, we've been pushed in this position of defense. We don't want to be here. We don't want to be dealing with rate cuts. We'd rather be looking at ways we can better the benefit and better the care delivery process. And that's absolutely what the Choose Home Care Act does. Um, extended uh, services in the home to piggyback on top of the, of the current home health benefit, added um, added eight hours, added uh, meal delivery, respite care, um, maybe some in-home modifications. That's the kind of stuff we want to be working on, and I think really what we're looking forward to be able to getting back um, into those into those discussions and pushing for policies like that. Any outlook at this point about when Choose Home might be something that will be seriously considered in Congress? Well, I think the best case scenario is CMS would back off these cuts right now, um, then that will leave us with the final month or two to really start um, re-energizing Choose Home. That being said, I don't think um, we're positioned well enough just from the time we've lost already this year to the rate cut, but I think that's going to be more something that we look at in the next Congress and really try and prioritize it then. Um, we've got great bipartisan support on it right now, and I say that because we're going into an election right now where one or both chambers of Congress could flip. You'd still have President Biden in office, of course, but um, if one of those flips, there's going to need to be a lot more bipartisan work being done, and we feel very good about Choose Home, given that it is um, uh, led by some very strong bipartisan champions. Terrific. Thank you so much for that summary. Let's turn now to Davis, uh, Director of Government Affairs for NAC with a specialty in hospice. Davis, what's happening in your world? Thanks, Liza, for having us. There's a lot going on in hospice and palliative care, too, outside of the hospice benefit like there always is. I'll start with some of the regulatory top issues. I'd say that something that the hospice community is really eager to see and that we at NAC are eager to dive into is the updated survey guidance related to uh, some legislation that passed a few years ago, the Hospice Act. This was a bill that was developed and passed in the wake of 2019's OIG reports on hospice quality that um, show that there were some areas that could use improvement in hospice survey and quality issues. So we are waiting for CMS to drop the implementing guidance around that legislation. It's going to be a major change for hospices, how the survey process unfolds, how the actual meat and potatoes of the surveys themselves are done. So there's going to need to be a lot of education and reorienting around hospice staff to this new process. I'm not going to touch on everything that the bill does or everything the guidance is going to hit on, but a few of the top-level priorities center around new frequencies for hospice surveys, new qualifications for the actual survey teams that are doing the hospice investigations, uh, requirements around how survey results get publicized and uh, posted to the Care Compare website. So that's going to be much easier for Joe Schmo to go online and find out exactly what's in hospice surveys. And then um, perhaps most impactful, there will be a new special focus uh, facility program uh, for hospices that are particularly poor performers on quality. This is going to mirror this a similar program that already in, exists in the skilled nursing setting and has for many years. Um, so that will be very new for hospices, as will a uh, novel set of enforcement remedies related to noncompliance. There's going to be some really impactful things there, including 
potential for civil monetary penalties imposed in hospice, as well as the potential for payment suspension. Those are, you know, those are big boy uh, responses to noncompliance, to quality issues that have never been a part of the hospice program. They've been a part of other Medicare programs. So it's almost hospices turn around the wheel, right, for some of this stuff. So a big change is coming on the survey and, and quality side. So we, we need to get that guidance out so that we can educate our members on it. Absolutely. There's a few other areas on the regulatory side as well. Um, and this kind of crosses over into some programs, some, some interesting model work as well. But the Medicare Advantage Valuation Insurance Design Carven, so to speak, as it's colloquially called, that is testing the integration of the hospice benefit into Medicare Advantage plans is a huge priority for NAC, for the industry. We just recently got some early evaluation data on this model, just last week, in fact. Um, NAC has always had concerns with this concept of carving hospice into Medicare Advantage. This early data is showing that there are there have been some challenges. Our members that participate are finding it's very difficult to get paid on time. It's very difficult to work through the administrative burden of working with the plans. Some folks aren't even getting paid at all for certain services that they are required to under the model. Some hospices are not being contracted with to deliver the palliative care, the upstream palliative care component of the model as well. And these are all concerning. These aren't necessarily you know, it's not to say that uh, these things can't be addressed and that we can refine and improve the process, but the early implementation experience is has been a challenge. And so what we need to do is take that data, take those anecdotes from participants, go back to CMMI and say, here's what needs to change, here's how you need to improve this component, this section, and so on. And, you know, just keeping our eye on how the model is unfolding. It's in its third year. It's a five-year model. It's yet to be seen if it will sort of have the types of cost-saving and quality of care results that are necessary for CMS to actually expand it nationwide. But we do need to prepare ourselves as an industry for that possibility. This is just some wonderful information here. I just wanted to go back to your updated survey guidance and ask you, really, what will that mean for the industry to have these special focus facilities and the new enforcement re remedies? What is that going to entail in terms of the kind of education that they're going to, that it's going to require for your members? Well, it's, as I said, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a sea change in the, 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 overall quality concept in hospice there's just it, it really what it means is that you're just going to have to beef up your capacity your competencies in the um, you know quality of care processes workflows um, manage those in a much closer way because you'll have more skin in the game because again the consequences for non-compliance are just m way more severe now so it's not necessarily that um, hospices themselves are having to do much different sort of as far as what they, if, if they're a high quality provider, um, that they have to change a lot of stuff around. It's as much as it is, you have to be very hyper vigilant now because CMS has additional tools in the toolbox to address shortcomings. Whereas when the only, the only remedy was pulling a hospice out of the Medicare program, just writ large, which is extremely severe, and CMS was always hesitant to do that because it has such 
ramifications for a community. Now they have these intermediary steps, and I, that probably means that they're going to be implementing those steps more frequently than they have that one single sort of doomsday scenario of pulling you out. So it's just a matter of being on top of your survey pr processes, um, maybe staffing up, making sure your entire staff is educated on the new requirements because, again, the implications will be uh, a lot more severe than they have been. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> then going to your second um, regulatory issue on VBID, do you still maintain reservations and based on this new data about hospice being folded into the Medicare Advantage benefit? And is this something you're kind of going to be pushing against? Absolutely. And um, it does give us pause when we see some of this new data. You know, we have been hearing from our members that participate and, uh, you know, non-member non participant hospices anecdotally since the beginning of the demonstration that it's been a challenge. Um, all those areas I mentioned, billing, you know, um, getting paid on time, having to deal with the, uh, the, the quality reporting processes and so on. Um, again, we've been hearing about those in a qualitative way. Now we have some data to back it up. Uh, we are concerned about it. Um, we will continue to monitor and, you know, if need be, we talk to the the Hill about the, the demonstration just to make sure that they're up to date on, um, you know, how it's unfolding, how it's implementing. And, you know, if it gets to the point where uh, we need to be calling for the demonstration not to go forward at all, I mean, we are prepared to do that. Now, again, we're only in the third year, so there's still time for um, processes to be improved. But as I said before, conceptually carving the hospice benefit into the Medicare Advantage program, um, we were not in favor of it when it was even being proposed. I think there's a lot of illustrative lessons to learn from how home health has been sort of, uh, has had to work with Medicare Advantage over the years. Been a lot of challenges on the admin side, on the getting paid on time side, and honestly on the quality side. Um, because, you know, a large payer's primary incentive is to save dollars from going out the door. So um, sometimes that means that they prefer to contract or go with a lower quality provider because they're the ones who are willing to take the um, reduced rates that plans want to pay. So that's been a challenge from a patient and family perspective as far, you know, as, far as quality is concerned. We don't want to see, see the same dilution uh, on the hospice side were this to become a nationwide um, program. Wow, there's just um, a lot to cover uh, in the area of hospice, isn't there? And then there's the issue of quality measures. Yes, correct. Um, there's there's uh, a lot of new requirements, a lot of new developments in the area of quality beyond just the survey. You know, the survey guidance, the survey overhaul, that's a quality issue as well. Um, but particularly for quality measurement, uh, hospices are this year um, being measured on two new claims-based quality metrics, um, the Hospice Care Index, which is a composite measure. It's made up of 10 different um, particular quality indicators, all of which roll up into a single score, and then um, the hospice visits in the last days of life measure. These are both claims measures, as I said. So, um, you know, blessing and curse. The blessing is that these don't impose an additional administrative burden on hospices because CMS pulls the data on them directly from claims. So that's great. Um, but 
these are new areas that hospices are being measured on. So there's education that needs to happen. Um, there is a sort of a process refinement that needs to happen. You need to look at your data. Hospices need to look at their data on all 10 of these new um, HCI indicators in a much more focused way than they have in the past. Again, because these are now part of the official hospice quality reporting program, which as we know is tied to payment. So, you know, if, if you're wanting to get paid on time, if you're wanting to get paid in full, um, these two new measures are really important. That The hospice visits in the last days of life, there's been a lot of focus, of kind of on the program integrity side, also on the quality side, in that um, sort of last five to seven days of someone's life. That's often when a patient and family need the most intense services. So CMS is trying to incentivize um, getting the right care, the right visit to someone at that point uh, in particular, since that's often when uh, they need the most hands-on care. That's what this new measure is about. So hospices need to pay attention there. There's been so much scrutiny uh, on hospices. Um, why? Uh, in a nutshell, the, the benefit is growing. It's, it's, it started, you know, uh, 1982, uh, a small sort of volunteer-driven program that wasn't reimbursed. Now, I think last year, it might be the most up-to-date data we have, but uh, Medicare spent $22.5 billion um, on the Medicare hospice benefit. So as the benefit grows, as the government spends more money on the benefit, um, is almost a law of nature that there's going to be additional oversight. Um, it's not just the pure sort of raw growth and spending, however. There also is a lot of concern around um, longer lengths of stay in hospice. And this is related to the spend because, of course, hospice, the, the payment system is per diem. You get paid by the day. The longer someone's in hospice, the more spending there is. So I think there's because of a natural progression in the older population, the seriously ill, terminally ill population, um, as folks are living longer with non-cancer diagnoses, non-cancer illnesses that are more difficult to prognosticate around, that have more complicated disease trajectories than some, someone with cancer, um, these folks are increasingly being served by hospices, but because it's much harder to, again, predict with accuracy when they might pass, um, they are in the aggregate having these longer stays. And that is a flag for CMS, MedPAC, Congress, again, because it correlates to the higher spending. So, and then, and then to be honest, there have been, um, you know, with the growth and the benefit, there have been small pockets of genuine bad actors out there who have gotten into the game for all the wrong reasons to juice the system, uh, line their pockets. And that's a very small minority of, of quote unquote hospices out there. You know, some of these are, are just fraudsters. Um, and, uh, they're really fleecing the system, and uh, oftentimes the horrible behavior on that end um, will generate big, splashy headlines, and those headlines draw attention as well. But we don't think at all that that's the reflective of the industry at, you know, in general. We would argue that the m much bigger concern in hospice is that only half of Medicare decedents get any hospice at all, and something like 20% are only on it for seven days or less, which is, it's a six month benefit, you know, where you're leaving a lot of quality of life, so to speak, on the table there. 
Well, there's plenty more to talk about, but let's leave it there. Davis Baird and Calvin McDaniel of NAC, thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com. Home